and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Today, we're featuring an episode from the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast. Published by the MIT Press, Harvard Data Science Review is an open-access, multidisciplinary journal that defines and shapes data science as a scientifically rigorous field, based on the principled and purposed production, processing, parsing, and analysis of data. In this episode, the journal's features editor, Liberty Vitter, and editor-in-chief, Li Meng, discuss art auctions with art curator Dan Cameron and art gnomes Jason Bailey. We hope you enjoy this intersection of data science and art. If you would like to learn more about the Harvard Data Science Review, please find the journal on Twitter at VHDSR and remember to subscribe to their podcast on your favorite platform. And it's sold to the high bidder. We're talking everything art auctions today on the Harvard Data Science Review podcast. I'm Liberty Vitter, media feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review. Today, our editor-in-chief, Shaoli Meng, and I talk with two figures in the art world, Dan Cameron, a renowned American contemporary art curator, and Jason Bailey, the mind behind Art Gnome. And I want to start by thanking uh, Jason for writing that fabulous article for Harvard Data Science Review on whether the machine learning can predict the arts. And uh, I want to uh, also thank Jason that you start with that uh, incredibly interesting example about the banana on the wall, which uh, uh, completely uh, surprised me. So I want to invite you first to tell the audience uh, what is this whole banana is about and, and how do you use machine learning to predict something this crazy? Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks for having me on and for the opportunity to write the article. I think when when these sort of crazy stories in the art world hit, they're some of the only stories that go to the mainstream. So people may actually be somewhat familiar or remember it was about two years ago at Art Basel, Mauricio Catalan, an artist, taped essentially a, a banana with duct tape onto the wall. So folks that don't maybe don't know, Art Basel is one of the big uh, art fairs annually um, that takes place in several cities. This one happened to be in Miami. And immediately it captured the, the news and everyone's attention because people land on one side or the other where it's like, oh, see, this is why art is ridiculous because people can just tape a banana to the wall and that can go for, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then other people say, well, you know, this is the kind of dialogue that we want to see created. But for me, it sort of brings up this question of, if art can be so many different things, is it even possible to create a model that can predict the value of it, right? If we have a hard enough time even defining what art is and how the market will react, is it possible to define it? And I think part of what the, the article goes into is that it's the answer is both yes and no, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, there are going to be um, certain artworks that are sort of outliers that are out on the extreme that are maybe hard to predict, like, you know, how much a banana taped to a wall will go for. Um, but then there's also a, a large amount of, of art that gets, you know, sort of sold regularly that is a, a bit more predictable mm -hmm. sort of in, in the middle market, right? 
a quick comparison might be if you think about something like Zillow, the, the housing market prediction tool. Yeah. Zillow does not do a great job for houses that cost tens of millions of dollars, right? Because there's just not that much of a sample size, so the model's not as strong. Those things just don't occur as frequently. But Zillow does a great job in terms of doing um, predictions across sort of the middle of the market, right? And, and the more it sees a standard transaction or a certain type of house sell, the uh, stronger or better its predictions are. That's a great uh, analogy. You know, we've gotten into this sort of crazy story of the banana, but Dan, how is art traditionally valued? Well, thank you for having me on, first of all. And I think that the, um, yeah, I, I think that any discussion that starts off with the banana duct tape to the uh, art, art fair booth wall um, as an example of art, particularly as an example of how difficult it is to define art, uh, that's that's not a good start. That's not a that's not such a productive start, I think, because um, as Jason said, that's a that's an example of an outlier. Um, but in fact, when you look at it from an art world perspective, it's not an outlier at all. Um, Maurizio Catalan is a well known artist for pulling pranks. That's his thing. He he makes jokes, um, and, and very often they're art world in jokes, like jokes meant for the in crowd. As this was, he had retired not that long ago, uh, from public view. He was not going to be showing. He was not going to be selling. And, you know, one isn't really all that certain of what the circumstances were that brought him out of hiding uh, for this particular art fair. But, you know, he has a particular gift for drawing a lot of attention, for doing some outrageous statement that gets him a lot of attention. Um, and in this case, since it was an art fair, it also was a, a work to be sold. I believe it was an edition of three. But so anyway, if the question is, how does the art world determine art traditionally? Well, you start with the name of the artist. That's the first thing. And then you go on with the information about the piece, the date it was made, what the materials are. Most art that's being sold is being sold for less than, say, $10,000. And a lot of art is being sold out of your neighborhood. <laughs> I don't know, coffee shop? community art center, artists cooperative. I mean, there are all kinds of ways. And so I guess for me, because I specialize in the primary market, which is when artwork first enters the marketplace, let's say, the first time an artwork is sold, the question of how you value this, um, I think is based entirely on experience and qualitative we can go ahead and call them subjective judgments if we want. And then you get the secondary market where things are resold and then resold again and then resold again. An artwork can be resold at an art fair. It can be resold in the back room of a gallery that specializes in second secondary market objects. Or it can be sold at an auction in a, in a public way because the auction is a place of such concentrated theater and it makes for wonderful scenes in movies you know the famous auction scene where you think you're scratching your nose and instead you've bought a Rembrandt that <laughs> always always sums up something about how the art world values things that I find sort of remarkable because it's at that moment when the artist the creator of the work has the least say about what happens to it. In other words, there's no primary market in the art auction field. A lot of that work has already been through an owner or two. And so it's at the secondary market where you start getting into the experts, you know, the, the people who have 
you know, the calculators and they know the market. Mm -hmm. They can really screen using one of the many data crunching devices. And then you sort of work your way around, you know, to a sort of a soft idea of a value. But we also, I think, want to talk about other values that are ascribed to art. I mean, I'm not terribly interested in how the market determines the value of the art. I'm a bit more invested in the idea of how the culture, how the community at large um, determines the value of the art, because ultimately art's value comes from its lasting. Right. Every artist I know is working for that long, long, long view. When we're all dead, and someone of our grandchildren's generation is sitting back going, hey, you know what? That's really held up. Let me follow up on the question to turn the question to Jason that uh, Dan talked about how traditionally evaluate these arts. Now, I, I understand that you know machine learning is particularly good for pattern recognitions, that's kind of thing. But in this space, what are the specific uh, methodologies people are using for uh, evaluating art using, using machine learning or any other kind of data science uh, tools? Yeah, so I think that they're looking at a lot of the same things that human experts would look at. When was it created or what materials were used or, you know, the name of the artist. So when I spoke with Sotheby's machine learning team, they mentioned that the primary feature that drove predictability of the price was who made the work. Sure. And when I looked at the research, the academic research, one of the things that surprised me is how little what the artwork looks like has to do with the price that it'll end up getting at auction. So maybe shouldn't have been surprising to me because as an example, if you think about like a Mark Rothko painting, and I think I referenced this in the article that may be worth, you know, 20, 30 million dollars or something like that. That same exact painting with the same colors, the same canvas that, that someone had on their wall and loved and thought was culturally meaningful and relevant can go down to near worthless, right, if it's decided that it's not by Mark Rothko. I see. That kind of alone gives us a bit of a clue that the context, right, who made it and how many people are bidding on the work are actually some of the, the most important things in deriving the price, right? So I, I also want to say, you know, that, you know, my background is in art history and studio art. So grew up uh, very passionate about art, kind of refer to art history as my, my religion. But I, I think that caring about the value of art in terms of we can stand in front of a painting and it can bring us to tears because, you know, it means so much to us and it's sort of a lens onto our shared um, cultural history doesn't mean we can't also be curious about are there repeatable patterns within art when it goes to market that have any bearing on the sort of price that it could bring at auction. I think one aspect that I was really interested in about the valuing of art or the understanding of art was the sort of the difference in artists with early access to high prestige institutions versus low prestige institutions and how that changed how much the art was sold for and whether these artists were ever able to, you know, who was started in low, uh, low prestige institutions could ever get to high prestige institutions. What did you sort of find with that? Yeah, there was a great bit of research that was done around what's the impact on artists based on where they're born geographically and what that means in terms of access to higher level um, institutions versus lower level institutions. And it turned out, I want to say there were like four or five really important institutions that if you had access to geographically or through your personal network, that those artists um, had a much, much higher chance of succeeding in the traditional, what we would call the traditional art world. And those who didn't have that access almost had, you know, no chance 
chance, right? So I don't want to go necessarily as far as saying that the system is rigged, but it, but you know, there's certainly your chances of success are dictated um, a bit historically by your color, skin color, gender, geographic location. We know these things sort of inherently, right? Because when we go into the museums, we can see there's sort of disproportionate representation, right? So wh what does that have to do with prediction? Well, all of those become factors, right? When you're building out the model and being able to predict things out. So I think those kind of come to the surface as, as uh, key points. Dan, what do you think? Do you think artists without these access have a shot at all? in this current situation? I guess the larger question to me has to do with the outlier position of the mm. truly innovative artist. Because again, if you're talking about having a run-of-the-mill career as an artist, you got some representation, you have some sales, you make a kind of a living. Hell yeah, it's better to be white, male, gone to Yale, and coming from the upper third echelon of the socioeconomic stratum. When has that ever not been true for every single profession that we can name? So let's look at the most influential and probably the most impactful American painter of the second half of the 20th century, Jean-Michel Basquiat. He has none of those qualities. You cannot tick him off on a on this chart. So whoa, 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 wait, I mean, his paintings sell for tens of millions. Why wouldn't he fit? Why wouldn't his position as such an exceptionally important artist drag the median a little bit more in his direction? And the reason is because art only uh, develops when it changes. It only develops when the rules change. That's how we count progress, is how different what we have today is from what we had just a year ago. And how exciting we, who work in the field, uh, find that rapid change. So sure, you could say that white is really an important uh, skin color to have in the art world. But then if you look back at the current art season, the current gallery and museum season, that's not true at all. Close to 50% of gallery programming at the moment is actually of black and artists of color. And this is a absolute direct outcome from the movement for black lives starting in 2016, but especially in 2020. So all I'm doing is trying to point out that the changes that are the most important to us in the primary market field are the ones that represent the greatest capacity for a radical shift from wherever it was we were at 18 months ago. But I guess, I guess that leads me to sort of the bigger question. If, you know, if change is really what we're looking for, Dan, you know, can machine learning models recognize and appraise all art? I mean, do you believe that's possible? In order to value a work, you actually have to determine that it's who the possessor claims that it is. You know, like, you, can, you know, you can't show up with a Rembrandt etching and say, hey, sell this for me. You've got to submit it to experts who want to make sure that that Rembrandt etching belongs to the series that you say it was and, and everything, you know, that it's all kosher. So somewhere between authentication, where I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, why wouldn't you want to use machine learning to speed that process up, to just sort of have something where you, something can look at it and go, 
I'm not sure that Georgia O'Keeffe passes the smell test or whatever it would say back to you in, in computerese. But um, as far as appraisals go, as saying like, well, you know, this one has a smudge over on the side that we haven't seen before. Well, you know, stop. Because right there in the world of prints and editions, it's a little like coins or, or stamps where the odd ones, the things that make it peculiar, like this particular print have, might have a weird, I don't know, uh, uh, wash that the artist put in there. Well, if you're judging it by the rest of the prints in the series, that thing is a dud. If you're realizing that, oh my God, the artist put a wash on it, that means it's not a print anymore. It's a unique work of art. Hmm. No computer is going to be able to do that. You have to have somebody who will step back and go, holy shit, <laughs> you know, Rembrandt actually painted that. I mean, there's a certain point where you've got to have a trained eye to determine the difference when a defect or something that appears like an aberration, an abnormality, doesn't tank the value, it actually hikes the value. And that happens a lot. That's a perfect segue to the question I was thinking to ask Jason about, which is that, you know, you said the uh, machine learning models potentially can scale up to appraise all kinds of art. But you're saying not just for the work going through the auction time. What do you mean by, by that, not just the auction time? So my understanding of the auction art market and the art market in general is that it's a bit like where the housing market was pre things like Zillow and Redfin, where mm -hmm. because it cost money to get an appraisal and required uh, human expertise, you would typically get these sort of appraisals tied around a given event, like if, if you were going to bring it to auction as one of those events, right? And that's because it's sort of a manual process that requires um, time and energy and can be expensive. But what we saw in the housing market and where we could shift to using machine learning in the art market, you could go, if you're Sotheby's, for example, you could go back and look at all the work you've ever sold to any collector ever mm -hmm. and run it through a machine learning algorithm and get a current valuation for it and then go back to those people that had bought it um, or sold it in the past and say, hey, do you realize that the market value for this has potentially gone up by X, right, which could be enticing? Mm -hmm. And given what we know about how the number of people that bid on a given work drives its value up or down in the secondary market, you could also then go back through that same group and say, hey, you know, uh, not only has this gone up potentially, but we've got two or three potential collectors, right, that we think could be interested in it. So I think where machines, um, you know, machine learning and AI um, kick in, maybe where the human experts can't. And I see them, to be clear, I see these machine learning and AI tools as augmenting human expertise, not necessarily replacing them. There's no doubt that there are things that the machines can see. You know, Dan referenced the smudge that maybe the machine couldn't interpret. But let me give a quick story about like computer vision, right? And, and how that can find things that maybe humans can, why they're such a good fit for each other. Mm -hmm. So ukioe.org, uh, I believe it is, um, used this computer vision system that would look across all these Japanese prints all around the world and all the different museums and of course prints have multiple issuances of the same image right and uh, what he found was that the same print would often show up in different museums attributed to different artists or under different names right and when you have a database with tens of thousands um, or more artworks AI and, and computer vision and machine learning can actually make connections and see things visually on a scale that it's pretty hard for us to do right mm -hmm. For me, it's about how do we combine these two things together and make it so that we can get to a point where 
we could put a, a new appraisal on tens of thousands of works every day because once you have the machine learning model in place, you can just repeat the model, right? Whereas you would have to have more ex human experts than we currently have to, to do an analysis at, at that scale and that frequency. Is there a point though where people who don't appreciate art or love art could end up using something like a machine learning algorithm to try to predict what art's going to sell for a lot in the future and then just become traders in art without any appreciation for it? I mean, I was I was listening to Dan at another thing where he said, you know, you can't just value art based upon what it should cost. It's how it makes you feel. And it's that emotional attachment. And do you both think that this could sort of create that type of market where people are just buying it because of how much it's going to be in the future? Well, it's not the dangers in that it's going to create that kind of market. We already have that kind of a market. And I think that um, one of the things that Jason is pointing out that, I, that I'm going to go along with him on uh, has to do with the nature of the market right now, which is that, you know, the art world used to be a place where luxury objects passed into private hands. And at a certain point along the way, the artwork uh, became a commodity. And then over time, an asset that was, you know, liquid in the way that your stocks would be liquid, that you would just, you know, cash out and pass the asset along to the next one in line. And that is the model of art consumption that I think has created this very strange notion that the way to be part of the market is to become what we call a flipper, where your function in the art world is to buy an artwork sit on it for a year or two, and then sell it just when the price gets to be a certain point. Mm -hmm. When the question comes up about machine intelligence, I always ask myself, who is the principal actor in the art field who we're trying to replace here? And listening to Jason speaking, I'm, I'm hearing the art advisor, the role of the art advisor, who's the person that you hire to tell you, you know, what to buy based on your criteria, not on some pre-established criteria of like, well, and you can be guaranteed to sell it all in 10 years, at, you know, double the value. You know, that's not what an art advisor does. Uh, they do they do make sure that your money doesn't go down the tube and just make you buy frivolous things. But most art advisors are in it for long-term investment on the part of their um, clients. That's how the system works. And most particularly when it comes down to the dealer, to the gallery. If anyone thinks that they're going to prosper in the contemporary art field by going to primary market galleries, buying the hot young things, and then flipping them as fast as they can, those buyers have a rude awakening coming for them when they go back to those same galleries and try to buy work by the next hot young thing. Because the big surprise here is those galleries aren't in it for the short-term investment either. They're invested in those artists for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, Metro Pictures just closed, or he's closing, pardon, uh, after having represented Cindy Sherman exclusively worldwide for 40 years. That's how the art world works. So, yes, there's a huge, and always has been, a huge secondary market for Cindy Sherman. But if you want to buy a Cindy Sherman fresh off the field, there's no way you're going to do that unless you jump through all of the hoops that the blue chip dealers invariably make you jump through because they're, I would say, hyper protective of the resale market of their artists. And you can say that's fair or unfair that the dice are loaded. But right now, you know, the art world is pretty much dominated by about half a dozen 
big box galleries with billions of dollars of assets um, that represent, in some cases, hundreds of artists and estates all at the same time. And they're the ones who are setting the rules for everyone around them. But um, there is another art market, you know, underneath that, that consists of hundreds of smaller and medium-sized galleries that show mostly living artists emerging in mid-career and older. And that's thriving as well, fortunately, because in some cases, trickle-down does work. So that's actually uh, leads me to a kind of a more technical question for Jason, particularly thinking about these artists who have been there for a long time. They create the styles, they create all those things. I, then I completely get your point that kind of the best interesting art is the change, not the, doing the same thing. But nevertheless, I assume that there are artists with known styles, you know, things are kind of a more repeatable. Does the machine learning now have the capability to recognize these patterns better than, you know, expert can. So in a way, they have a better chance to tell something the fake from the real thing. Yeah, I think we're starting to see machine learning being used to detect forgery um, in addition to being used for valuation. And again, I think when you set it up as man versus machine, you kind of have a false dichotomy. I think for a while, we're going to have the two sort of supplementing each other or augmenting each other. And I think that there's actually promise in using machine learning to look at forgery. So there's a company, they'll take an entire catalog resume for an artist, and then they divide up all the works into smaller chunks too, so that they're looking at the work at different scales. And using those, you know, you need your, your model's only as good as your training data, so they then feed the model with that training data and can use it as, you know, yet another tool to establish whether or not something's a forgery. And even we as humans have to go through this process. You know, I've talked to some people that do appraisals for auctions, and I think they go through and typically find comps, right, um, that they're looking at that are, you know, works that are similar, that have sold more recently. So there are actually rules that humans use, even the human experts, right? And I think those human uh, rules can kind of carry over. So, And I would also say that, and this almost seems like I'm saying the opposite of what I said before, but um, I think machine learning is very good in the odd duck example of, a, of an artist's work. Like, you know, let's say the hypothetical missing Jackson Pollock drawing. Well, you know, if you actually have scanned every drawing and every print and every painting that Jackson Pollock ever made, and then you have this unknown example and you compare it to the database, then I think that you do eventually have a probability of authenticity, which is really the best that a human is going to be able to give you. But I keep thinking of, I'm not a robot, where you have to prove for authentication verification purposes. And it always seemed to me that the way that operates is that a robot cannot see the difference between a traffic light that's, you know, shaped like a simple version of a traffic light and then one that's skewed or at an angle or at a, in the rain. And, and so that always makes me think about contemporary art because I, I always feel like, oh, contemporary art is the part that's in the rain or skewed or somehow darkened and not is something you can't really see. And the idea that you know especially in the in the world of emerging artists where everything's new i feel like well you know we're all kind of lost so you know it'd be nice maybe to have that advantage i see the thrill of art you know every week i go to maybe a dozen 20 galleries always showing new art and i'm not out there buying i'm not a collector in that sense but i'm i'm out there having just a wonderful experience and feeling like i'm just incredibly fortunate, you know, to be able to have this close-up 
contact with, you know, art that hasn't even been defined yet. It hasn't even established its place in the sort of the stylistic spectrum. And um, I find that thrilling. I would like more people when they think about art to be thinking about the experience that doesn't necessarily involve um, the buying and selling. Not that I'm against it because artists have to make a living um, and I'm all for artists selling as much as they could. What I'm not for is for people buying art that they don't love for reasons that they think will get them financial gain at a certain point down the line and, you know, going and sticking it in a vault for 10 years so that no one will breathe on it or no dust. Will get. I mean, there's way too much art going from the studios into vaults right now. And I would love it if we could pull back a little bit from, from that part of the art world. Yeah. So, you know, we, we probably uh, agree with each other more than we realize, you know, as a lifetime art student, the human experience of art and the creation of art and, you know, uh, first and foremost, the appreciation of art. These things are, are life changing. They've certainly given me my life to this point. But I think we also have to be careful that that somehow doesn't get in the way of us being able to be intellectually curious about how the market systems work and, and how tools might be able to be applied there. I don't think they have to be you know, mutually exclusive. With COVID, not being able to go to museums has really been the biggest impact on my life. So museums are like my therapy, right? I go all the time and have since I was a little child. And there's that sincere experience there. And when I started writing about you know, analytics and art, even my, my mother, right, is like, well, why are you bringing quantification to art like this last great, beautiful, spiritual realm where we can like, you know, really just experience things sort of subjectively and you're overlaying these tools. And, you know, I, I try to use this analogy. I'm also a big basketball fan, right? Uh -huh. You know, seeing Jordan jumping from the free throw line and doing a dunk, you know, that's not cheapened or made any less amazing to me because I also know, you know, his average points per game or these other things, right? So I think when you really love something, like I love art, and I think, you know, you, you obviously love art, being able to train a quantitative lens on it, to me, just gives you another way to look at something you love, right? Um, and I don't, I don't think it pushes out the ability to appreciate it from an artistic perspective. As someone who's really uneducated in art, one thing that I don't understand is it seems like a lot of the value is from the new, from the change. So when someone like um, Rothko does this new, I'm gonna use the wrong words, but wash method with the backlit technique or Pollock with the drip technique or Basquiat, you know, these sort of change makers. I don't really understand how either the human or the machine learning algorithm could value it because it's so new. How is it that this becomes the valuable new thing? Well, I mean, I think that human beings evolve through adaptation. And I think that our brains are an integral part of the overall organism, the, the human being. And I think that, you know, new art fulfills some of the same characteristics as baseball, let's say, for someone who follows it, or, you know, someone who's into skydiving or, or mountain climbing or someone who's, you know, obsessed with gothic music. I think the idea that we um, throw ourselves into these specialized fields and, and try to uh, transform ourselves into sort of experts, you know, in these fields, I think this is um, how we evolve as a species in art. I mean, the, the attraction of the new is because it introduces moments of uncertainty. I can remember my first time seeing Basquiat. I can remember my first time seeing Jeff Koons or Cindy Sherman or Sherry Devine. And these are not simple experiences. You know, you don't 
always look back and say to yourself, wow, I was really on the money, wasn't I? Like right there in that moment, I called it. You know, maybe you did and maybe you didn't. But, you know, there's that experience that you have when your own sort of conflicted relationship to a visual experience itself transforms over time, you know, and you go back to that artist and, and, and it's not as unthinkable or impossible or, uh, you know, like, you know, way beyond the realm of, of the acceptable. Somehow your own sense of reality has caught up to that, we'll call it an outside experience. And now you're, you're ready to expand your own view of the world to incorporate this newness. And I think that fulfills a universal desire. I mean, it does in me, you know, that things that I had violently rejected somewhere down the line, I was just like, oh my God, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And this seems to be the story of all modern cultures since Stravinsky first performed The Rite of Spring and audiences stood up and howled and threw things at him. You know, I'm reading a book right now about the generation of Jackson Pollock and just how the audience of his time got it wrong pretty much half of the time. You know, like the relationship between what he was accepted for and embraced for doing and what his peers considered a failure it's a perfect 50-50 split, you know, and that really taught me how we caught up. The paintings didn't get any better. We got better or we got smarter or we got more seasoned. I don't know what the right verb to use is, but we, we adapted to the new art. And I think some of us crave being like at the cusp of that adaptive process. Well, I think your point of art brings out this appreciation for uncertainty and this anticipating of the changes really bring art much closer to uh, data science, or at least statistics that uh, I appreciate it because, you know, as a statistician, our job is to deal with uncertainty, to anticipate these changes, to understand what's common, what's not common, what's the outliers. And so that's a really great point. Um, I want to thank you for this fabulous conversation to both of you, but unfortunately, we're started running out of time as we anticipated. This could be an incredibly uh, interesting conversation, but I have to ask this one more question that I know at least some some audience would want us to ask is, uh, you know how people love the stories about how experts get food. So obviously, the question comes to both of you that, you know, what's your story that you say, oops, you know, I was food, or maybe Jason, with your, you had the help of the machine, maybe less food, then you might be more, you know, is there any, uh, some uh, fun story can you share with, uh, with our uh, listeners? I'm waiting for Jason to go first. <laughs> uh-huh. Sorry, sir. So, so I, I'm fooled all the time. Um, okay. uh, I, you know, I will say we did, um, Kyle Waters, Art Gnome Data Scientist, and I did, um, for the Ebsworth collection, we did a public prediction on, you know, four works, um, you know, ahead of the auction, right? So the key to all of this is anyone looks like an expert after the fact. Now, four works is such a small number that, you know, we got a lot of credit for coming out with like uh, a more accurate assessment than the, the experts at Christie's uh, at the time. But, you know, we kind of had to backtrack and be like, well, you know, that's it's four works, right? It's like calling heads if you flip a quarter or whatever, you're going to be right 50% of the time. Right. Um, so, yeah, while we were proud of that, we kind of had to actually like 
give a take away credit we were being given and remind people that like that's such a small sample size that you know you'd really have to show performance at a much larger scale um but yeah i think you know the the machines get it wildly wrong sometimes um right and often there's like data errors or issues in there things that they haven't seen before and on the whole you know um i think they do they do well and are getting better every day but you periodically see something really funky come across and that's where the human expert um, will always be valuable Dan, it's your turn now. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I think that it's not so much about getting it wrong from the vantage point of of declaring something valuable and important, and then having it blow up in your face. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the parable of the one that got away. You know, I still see myself, you know, suspended, you know, twelve feet above my body back in '78, seeing that first Cindy Sherman show. You know, and I'm I'm trying to whisper down to my younger self then saying, it's only twelve hundred dollars. You can pay it off in monthly installments, Dan. Do it. But it did I mean thinking about those things makes me respect uh and I guess it's another way of saying the aberrational position is the unoccupied position. This is something that often comes up in conversations is who is occupying the unoccupied position who found a spot that no one else had claimed it's not better it's not even necessarily outside it's just unoccupied and that's a very odd thing i mean i went to an exhibition the other day and it was a show of paintings and half the paintings had holographs oh wow stuck on them right so you're looking at acrylic on canvas and then you're looking at holographs and i stood there looking at going I am seeing the birth of a new technique. You know, I I don't know where this is going. I didn't particularly care for these examples, but I was like, damn, that is an unoccupied position that somebody just filled. And I kind of live for those moments. And I hope you actually spend $1,200, $1,200 on that this time. (laughs) Uh oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> well, nothing costs twelve hundred dollars anymore. I know, I know, I know, I know. I learned that <laughs> I learned that very recently with Dan at an art auction where I'm never allowed again because I clearly get art auction fever. But ooh, ooh, um, ooh, ooh. Jason, um, thank you so much for writing that article for HDSR. We so appreciate it and for being here today. And Dan, thank you for making art understandable and being so patient and kind with me to explain this and answering my out of the blue email asking if you would come and talk to us about this. Oh, thank you for having, I love talking about art. And Dan, again, thank you for curating the most magnificent charity art auction for USA, for the UN Refugee Refugee Agency ever a couple couple days ago. We raised a bundle. We did, we raised a lot of money and that was all to Dan's effort. So thank you. You're welcome. And that's all we have for today. From me, Liberty Vittert, and my co-host, Shaoli Meng, thanks for listening.